came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves. She sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes get different views. Are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. Today is Sunday, the 1st of August. And this is your August Sky Guide. We always include a community service announcement, asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively, and isolate as much as possible. And as soon as you can, to protect yourself and your community, get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this global crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Each month we bring you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, you'll get to hear Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide, an astro treat for naked eye observers, telescopers and astrophotographers and he always includes a tangent of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist, or particle physicist. So, let's zoom over to Adelaide now to get your August Sky Guide from Ian. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Anne. Thanks for coming on again. And can you tell us, Anne, what's up in the sky for the month of August? Well, lots of interesting things are up in the August sky. For a brief overview, we have Saturn and Jupiter both in opposition in the late evening skies, which will make a very nice beauty. Venus is meeting the Moon and Mercury is returning to the evening sky and catches up with Mars. So that's the overview, but let's first start with going through the moon, as we do. So on August the 8th, we have the new moon. August the 16th is the first quarter moon. And this is a perigee first quarter, where the first quarter coincides with the moon being closest to Earth. Now, we've all got excited in the past by perigee full moons, but perigee first quarters are pretty cool too. So apparently last quarters, they occur in the early morning hours of the morning. So who's going to get up to see that? So if you have any memory of what the moon looked like back in January, you'll notice that this first quarter is bigger than the normal first quarter moon. In fact, it's bigger than uh, some of the full moons. So that would be fun to watch. And then, of course, we have the full moon on August 22nd and August the 30th is the last quarter again. And then, of course, as I said, perigees on the 17th, just after the official first quarter, 
but it's still close enough to be a, a perigee uh, first quarter moon. And the moon is at apogee on the August the 2nd. Let's start off with evening sky. Now we've got Mercury returning to the evening twilight, and this month and next month will be the best time this year to see Mercury in the evening. Mercury is not going to be really visible until about the middle of the month. So about the, from about the 15th, it should be readily visible from about 30 to 45 minutes after sunset. And just below Mars. Now, you've been used to, to having Mars as a, a reasonably bright object in the sky, but actually Mercury is going to be brighter than Mars at the moment. This may cause a little cognitive dissonance. <laughs> yep. So over this time, Mercury moves closer to Mars and on the... 19th, they're going to be just 0.2 degrees apart. That's less than half a full moon. And they will easily fit into telescope eyepieces. Unfortunately, of course, because they're going to be relatively lower than the horizon, unless you have a flat horizon and a telescope with a really good downward travel, you won't be able to see them telescopically. So uh, they're best seen about 40 minutes after sunset when the sky's a bit darker. But again, you're going to need a, a fairly level unobstructed horizon because the pair is only going to be about a hand span and a half about the west, above the western horizon at this time. And, of course, I'll remind you again that Mercury is going to be brighter than Mars. So if you see two bright objects together, you're going to say, ah, Mars is the bright one, Mercury is the dim one. No, it's Mercury is the bright one, Mars is the dim one. Cool. Uh, after this encounter, of course, Mercury uh, continues to rise in the evening sky. It's getting easier to see and it's chasing Venus. It doesn't. Uh, catch it up really, but it's heading towards Venus in the evening sky. And speaking of Venus, Venus is now dominating the evening sky from 30 minutes after sunset until nearly 90 minutes after sunset. It actually sets after 90 minutes, but unless again you've got one of the proverbial level horizon like an ocean, like I have, and it might be very difficult to see Venus after the 90 minutes. And you can actually quite see it quite easily very soon after sunset now. Venus is becoming brighter and brighter, and I can easily pick it up 10 minutes after sunrise. If you practice a bit and get, get some good reference points in, on your horizon, you should be able to pick it up very shortly after sunset indeed. Cool. Now, on the 11th, Venus is very close to the thin crescent moon. Quite a nice pairing. After this, Venus continues to climb higher in the sky. It's passing through Leo. It will end up uh, in the end of the month into Virgo, heading towards uh, Bright Star Speaker and has an encounter with Speaker uh, next month. Now back to Mars. Mars is low in the northwestern sky, and we've been used to it hugging the northwestern horizon for well over a month now. It's faded quite considerably, but it can still be identified as the brightish object below Venus until Mercury catches up with it. It's now best seen about an hour after sunset rather than an hour and a half, and it's progressively lowering, and by the end of the month, it's going to be very difficult to see in the twilight. Mars remains in Leo. It starts off the month not far from bright star Regulus in Leo. Now, Mars is also close to the crescent moon, uh, the day before Venus on the 10th. And again, both Mars and the moon will fit into a binocular field. And as I said, Mercury is coming close to Mars. They'll be relatively close to Mars uh, between the 17th and the 20th. But as I said, they'll be closest on the 19th. So right. much with uh, Venus above 
blazing brightly and the pair of Mercury and Mars below. Excellent. But the standout event of this month is Jupiter and Saturn. Jupiter and Saturn uh, are opposition this month. Now, uh, they're now uh, readily visible in the uh, late evening sky and evening beginning to be seen in the early evening sky. So Saturn is at opposition of the second and Jupiter is at opposition of the 19th. Now, opposition is when the planets are at their biggest and brightest as seen from Earth. So telescopically, Jupiter will be best from late evening to early morning when it's higher above the northern horizon. But you'll still be able to catch it quite nicely earlier, but when both uh, Jupiter and Saturn are at their highest is when you have the clearest and stillest skies for telescopic observation. Yep. And, uh, of course, having both gas giants at opposition in the same month is going to be a feast for us telescopic observers. You can start off in the uh, mid-evening looking at Saturn and then move to late evening looking at Jupiter. Now, Saturn's going to be easily seen from astronomical twilight. This is an hour and a half after sunset when the sky is fully dark from the very beginning of August. And Jupiter is readily visible from shortly after astronomical twilight. So, again, it's, it'll be best to telescopes much later when it's higher. But interestingly, by mid-month, if you're at astronomical twilight, that's when the sky is fully dark, you'll have this really great sight where if you look to the west, you'll see... Venus above the western horizon, and if you pivot to the east, you'll see bright Jupiter above the eastern horizon. So you get this wonderful effect of bright Jupiter on one side of the sky and bright Venus on the other. Of course, Saturn's bright too, but at magnitude 0.3, it's nowhere near as bright as at Jupiter that is at magnitude about minus three, and of course, Venus is around about magnitude minus four. So those two are very bright indeed. Saturn and Jupiter, the pair are really obvious. Saturn is obviously the dimmer one above the really bright bright object, which is Jupiter. Yep. And even small telescopes, Saturn is a sight to behold. The ringed planet is one of the, the joys and the wonders of our uh, solar system. And again, even in small telescopes, you'll be able to see the rings. You'll be even just able to see the differential shading on Saturn be able to see the darker polar caps and the brighter equatorial bands. If you're lucky, you might even be able, and you have a reasonably good telescope, you might be able to see the gaps in the rings as a dark line. At the moment, because Saturn is directly between Earth and the Sun, you won't see the shadow of Saturn on the rings. Later on, you'll be able to see the shadow creeping over the rings, taking a, a little bite out of it. Now, for those of you who don't know, Saturn's tilt with regard to Earth changes over the years. So that some years the rings never get quite face on, and then progressively the rings close up until you have this thin line of rings bisecting Saturn. So at the moment, the rings are not fully open, but moderately open but they'll be edge on in 2025. So each year after this, the rings will close up more and more until 2025. You'll just see this thin line dissecting Saturn and then they'll start opening up again. Yep. Nonetheless, the rings are still glorious. 
So let's go back to Jupiter. Remember, Jupiter's rising around astronomical twilight at the beginning of the month, and it's highest around 1am. So that's the best time for a teleoscopy. But of course, you can still do see good views. And if you're not really, not really invested in uh, getting uh, uh, extra crisp astrophotographs, you can watch, uh, enjoy Jupiter uh, almost as soon as it's high up above the horizon to bring it above the hills, the treetops and uh, roofs. So unlike Mars and Venus, where the size of the planets really change uh, as you get towards opposition, the size of Jupiter and Saturn don't change dramatically with opposition. But nonetheless, this is a very favourable opposition for Jupiter this year. The Jupiter will be about 49 arc seconds in diameter at the opposition, a little under the maximum diameter of 50 arc seconds, which will be achieved next year in 2020. Despite this, Jupiter will be big and bright for most of the month, not just the date of the opposition. So unless you have a really super scope, you're not going to be really able to notice these small size changes, but it will look really, really nice. Cool. And easily able to see the bands of Jupiter. If you've got a halfway decent telescope, you'll also be able to see the red spot. And of course, you can follow the, the rotation of the bands from night to night. And of course, there's the Jovian satellites and the Jovian satellites dancing around Jupiter are really quite fantastic. So even if you have just binoculars, just watching the, the moons dance around Jupiter is always a good thing. But there's, a, there's a, a couple of interesting things happening this month. On the 16th at 1.39 Australian Eastern Standard Time, there's a rare occurrence with all Jovian satellites either in eclipse or transiting Jupiter's disk. So it's, uh, Jupiter is completely unaccompanied by any of its attendant Galilean satellites. I said when I said all Jovian satellites, I mean all Galilean satellites. Obviously, all the tiny little rubble that, uh, that uh, has the name of satellite uh, will still be around. But the four Galilean satellites will be all either crossing Jupiter's disk or in eclipse, which will be really interesting. This one happen again until July 2033. So it'll be something special to enjoy. Also on the 15th, the evening of the 15th to the morning of the 16th, the shadows of three Jovian moons, Callisto, then Ganymede, and Europa, pass over the disk of Jupiter. So those two days are filled with moon delights. I see some good images coming out of that lot. Oh, I certainly hope so, and I hope to be one to take some of them. But, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Having said that, I've now doomed myself to night after night of cloud. <laughs> yep. That's usually the way. I haven't got my telescope out for almost a month now. So I really haven't got the big scope out since the lunar, lunar eclipse. It's either been raining or clouded or... Uh, or I've been chasing Venus and, uh, and Mars uh, down on the, on the um, shorefront uh, uh, with the little telescope. Yes, it's been the same over here in northeast Victoria. And it, sadly, it seems that when we have a really good, nice, wet winter, it's no good for astronomy. And when we have terrible droughts, it's fantastic for astronomy. <laughs> yeah. When we were in the Grampians, we watched the Weather Channel as 
wave after wave of lows crashed across southern Australia, yep. bringing the most horrendous weather. But uh, who knows? We might get lucky. Yeah. Okay, so what about the morning sky? Saturn and Jupiter still dominate the morning sky as well, despite rising early in the evening. Uh, although as the month goes on, they get closer and closer to the western horizon. Saturn particularly gets very close to the horizon, uh, but Jupiter is still relatively high above the northern horizon in the early morning, in the early part of the month. And, of course, if you're up early in the morning for whatever reason, that's a probably a good time to try and get a telescopic view of Jupiter as well. So now let's quickly turn to the stars. In August, the Milky Way passes directly across the zenith shortly after the sky is fully dark, so you don't have to wait until near midnight to see some of these wonderful clusters that I've discovered and discussed in Scorpius and Sagittarius. So Scorpius and, and Sagittarius uh, now dire almost directly lie across the zenith, and as does the centre of the galaxy. Although this makes for very uh, beautiful viewing, if you want to actually look at this with binoculars or telescope, you're going to get the crick in the neck as you try and crane your eyes up. Yeah. Uh, the best way is to either lie in a banana lounge with your binoculars or a blanket with your binoculars, of course, because it's still cold, you have to be swaddled up so you don't freeze to death. Equatorial scopes are really fantastic, but trying to get them to point directly at the zenith can be a pain in the bottom. Yep. Nonetheless, it's, they've got, still got beautiful viewing. Well, not only Jupiter and Sagittarius, but also the area around Centaurus and the Southern Cross is still a happy hunting ground. I won't go through do that again. But below uh, Scorpius is another constellation, uh, Ophiuchus, the serpent bearer. This is not part of the zodiacal constellations, even though the sun passes through uh, Ophiuchus. It's mostly dimmish stars, but if you uh, use your, uh, your binoculars and uh, star hop down, the uh, brightish, brightish stars of Ophiuchus, you can come to two quite nice little globular clusters, M10 and M12. They're not particularly bright, not like 47 Tucana or uh, Omega Centauri, which I described in the last uh, episodes, but they're still nice little uh, magnitude uh, six uh, clusters, which you can uh, pick up quite nicely as little fuzzy balls of cotton wool in binoculars or telescopes. You really should get a, a decent sky map to help you locate them, but they'll be quite good if you're tired of uh, hopping around the glories between, of the uh, clusters between the tail of the scorpion and Sagittarius itself. Cool. And that's it for the sky this month. Lots of great things to see, Ian. Now, do you have a tangent for us for August? I do indeed. I do indeed. Remember last month I talked about SEAL telescopes yep. and how SEALs can identify Venus? Yep. Well, it turns out humans might not be able to. Now, Venus has been consistently mistaken for other objects. Uh, a couple of years ago, it was mistaken for a, a marine flare down on the beach down the road from where I am. 
And then I mistook it for an oncoming client, which I thought was going to uh, crash into theirs. And then a few weeks ago, Jupiter was mistaken for a drone. You may have heard this, but a, uh, uh, a Scottish police officer feared she was being pursued for miles by a drone. But of course, it turns out the bright light in the sky that was following her was actually uh, the planet Jupiter. And it was only after a very drawn-out pursuit that she sought help from senior officers who told her that it was the bright planet. She tried to lose the drone as she, as she drove towards a shopping complex near the police station. And then she was found standing in the police yard with her hood up trying to hide from the drone, uh, which sounds kind of amusing. Uh, but it, uh, a mirror to an event a few years back when the Welsh police were called out to a 999 call about an unexplained object in the night sky. These police officers were able to solve the mystery straight away for their operator, and the laconic message was, it's the moon, over. Oops. Whoops, indeed. Now, to those of us who follow this podcast or to those of us who are interested in the, in, in the night sky generally, it beggars belief that someone could not recognise our moon and mistake our two brightest planets for aircrafts and drones. <laughs> and not just planets. A couple of years ago, the Pallades were identified as a mystery planet and its moons. Now, to be fair, there's a reason why bright celestial objects like the moon, Venus and Jupiter seem to follow you. They appear to follow you because they're very far away. And objects like trees and houses you pass by are very close um, by, by comparison. As you walk or drive along, the things much closer to you, like the trees and houses, appear to move between you and the celestial objects. Because they're so far away, the celestial objects don't seem to move at all compared to you and appear to be following you. So this is an explanation why people appear to be followed by Jupiter and Venus. But we can understand why this illusion occurs, but to not recognise it at all? How did it come to this when people can no longer identify a point part of the sky? Now, of course, light pollution plays a part. But in all the most light-polluted city centres, the brightest stars and planets are still visible. Now, on the other hand, most of us, although not our listeners, uh, now live largely divorced from our skies. We work inside our houses or flats, especially during the early pandemic, drive to and from work in enclosed vehicles. And if we do see the sky, it's a thin slice divorced from context by looming brick and concrete structures, illuminated within an inch of their lives. So we've lost connection with our environment and with our, our heritage in the sky. And many people have told me that they could not find the Southern Cross, emblemic of Australia and the key celestial navigation aid, uh, if their lives depended on it. But knowing where the, the bright planets and the stars will be in the sky is not just a matter of scientific knowledge and their roles in mythology and history. These things are beautiful in their own right. And we've been cut off slowly from a source of joy in our world that is simple and completely free. And I was just reading an article uh, recently which showed that there was a correlation between green space and overall health. The more green space you have in your suburbs, the healthier those suburbs are. And this includes things like being able to get out and go for a walk safely, to be able to look up and not be hemmed in. So can we improve sky literacy? I'm going to make this unusual suggestion in that we should encourage more people to walk in the evenings. Oh, yeah. Okay. So this time of COVID, it's not going to fly, but uh, at least we can walk in our backyards. But then again, in, um, 
in both South Australia and uh, Victoria and New South Wales, people are allowed out for exercise between two hours and one hour. And you have this time where you're meant to walk. So why not not only walk during the day, but walk at night? Now, if you're out walking the streets of your suburbs and towns, you're more likely to look up and see the beauty of the sky. The crescent moon need a bright planet, the silent journey of the ISS across the sky, the quick burn of a meteor. You don't really need to know the names of these things. But if you're out often enough to follow the snow change of the sky over the seasons, you will uh, get a feel for what the sky looks like, uh, of course, if you look up. And if people see these things, they're more likely to inquire about them, learn about, about them at their own pace. And as of course, as a bonus, it uh, will improve you for your health to be out walking. And this is another thing that was emphasised about the green space, is that when you make these spaces that people can walk in and walk to, you improve the health uh, of uh, not only uh, the psychological health of people, but also the physical health by them physically walking and getting out to the green. Many of our suburbs are actually not walking friendly. They either have inadequate paths or broken paths, or if you're going to go walking, there's nowhere to go. And the streets need to be safe to walk in the evening. The lighting has to be bright enough for people to walk comfortably, but not so bright that it drowns out the sky. Yep. And then you might even put up an occasional sky watching sign down the uh, beach on the beach path where I live. Uh, at various intervals, they put up uh, interpretive uh, signs which teach you about the constellations that you can see if you walk along that path at night. And of course, uh, as, I, as I said, in these times of COVID, there's not much encouragement to get out, but if COVID uh, is defeated, which it will be when we have enough people vaccinated, and you're out on your uh, lockdown exercise, you can do worse than look up. There's fantastic messages, Ian, there. Get vaccinated, get outside, look up, live longer, live happier. It's all the one package. And also be curious. I mean, another thing about this is if people are curious about the sky. They'll want to learn about not just the sky, but a whole range of other things. The Indigenous heritage about the sky, weather patterns, a whole range of things which will enrich people intellectually as well as uh, help them with their lives and make them better citizens. Fantastic. And possibly also better at Scrabble. <laughs> very good, Ian. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astro Blog Musgrave. It's been wonderful again. August is a fantastic month to get outside and look up and enjoy your night skies and your morning skies. Uh, again, fantastic being invited along, Brendan. I'm very pleased to share the skies with everyone. And if we both uh, encourage people to look up, uh, that will be absolutely fantastic. Uh, but don't look up to do what I did once, which was uh, look up and walk directly into a sign break in front of my teeth. <laughs> okay. See you later, mate. And remember... Astrophys is free and unsponsored, but we're very happy to recommend that you can always get the latest and best space news from Rami Mandal at spaceaustralia.com. Our next episode is a feature interview with Jake Clark, who uses TESS, the Galar Survey, Gaia, and the Minerva Australis Array up on Mount Kent in Queensland to hunt for exoplanets. 
We'll see you in two weeks. Radio Wave.